Stomach ulcers used to be a major health issue when I was a medical student at the Toronto Western Hospital back in the 1980s. On a 20-bed surgical ward on any given day, there were usually at least a couple of patients whose ulcers had become so severe, usually with heavy bleeding, that they had to be hospitalized. Some even required major surgery and removal of part of their stomach. Most needed blood transfusions. Of course, everyone knew the root of the problem. Ulcers were caused by a high-stress lifestyle and worsened by eating spicy foods and drinking alcohol. It was good business for the surgeons, but miserable for the patients. They could take medicine to reduce the amount of acid in the stomach, but while those pills reduced the pain, they didn't seem to prevent ulcers. Once you'd had one, you were likely to have another. Barry Marshall was a medical researcher in Australia at the time, and he was a very much outside-of-the-box kind of thinker. He had observed that an unusual species of bacteria could be found living in some people's stomachs, and he wondered if the inflammation from those infections caused ulcers. He was labeled a bit of a nut. After all, everyone knew that ulcers were caused by stress and spicy foods. Except everyone was wrong and Dr. Marshall was right. Yet there was so much resistance to his new idea that he finally, wait for it, drank a beaker full of the bacteria. When his stomach lining was examined two weeks later, it looked just like the stomachs of ulcer patients. And more importantly, after a few days of antibiotics, he was all better. Ulcers went from being intractable to, in many cases, curable. When we have firmly held opinions, we can be very resistant to changing them. After all, we adopted them because we thought they were true. They were supported by a logical line of reasoning and by our experience. And since most of us are vulnerable to confirmation bias, paying attention to and seeking out information that supports our opinion, and we tend to hang out with people who share our opinions, we seldom have reason to reconsider. In that frame of mind, when someone who sees things differently comes along, like a Barry Marshall, it's easy to dismiss them. In fact, it's even easy to mishear them, to think they are actually saying what you already think, but just saying it differently. This was the very problem that Jesus ran into when he tried to tell his disciples that he would be arrested, convicted by the Roman authorities, and crucified. Through the season of Lent, the six weeks leading up to Easter, we are following Jesus as he makes his fateful trip from Galilee to Jerusalem, where he will meet his death. We're looking at a series of snapshots from that journey, teachings that he gave or encounters he had with people along the way, teachings and encounters that are made more significant because Jesus knew they were among his last. This week, we will look at a brief encounter with Jesus' disciples recorded in Matthew's biography. Here's what he writes. It was at this time that the disciples came to Jesus with the question, Who 
is really greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child to his side and set him on his feet in the middle of them all. Believe me, he said, unless you can change your whole outlook and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It is the one who can be as humble as this little child who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This episode happened just after Jesus had told the disciples for the second time that he was going to be betrayed and put to death. But just like the doctors who knew that ulcers are caused by stress and spicy food, the disciples knew that Messiah would overthrow the Romans and establish a political kingdom centered in Jerusalem. I'm not sure how they had processed Jesus' statement that he was going to be betrayed and killed. Perhaps they thought it was a metaphor or a bit of rhetorical hyperbole. Jesus did tend to use both of those literary devices when he taught. But they were certain that Jesus' kingdom would be a political political kingdom with Jesus on a throne and that they, or at least James and John, were confident that they would have important roles, maybe minister of finance or minister of foreign affairs. To counteract that kind of thinking, Jesus puts a young child in their midst to illustrate the nature of his kingdom and the importance of childlike humility. Apparently, this message was an important one to Jesus. The humility of a child as the entry point to the kingdom is stressed in this passage. But Matthew comes back to it in the very next chapter when he records an incident where mothers are bringing their young children to be blessed by Jesus. The disciples try to, to shoo them away. Perhaps they're thinking Jesus should be working on his military strategy for the conquest of Jerusalem. But Jesus rebukes them and says, Let the little children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. And Mark and Luke also record both of those incidents where the need for childlike humility is stressed. That's six tellings of essentially the same message. And the notion of coming to God like a child is implicit in John's gospel when he records the story of Nicodemus, a member of the religious elite who is seeking the kingdom and whom Jesus tells that, despite his pedigree and training, he will have to come like an infant. In the first of these incidents, centering the humility of a child, All three of Matthew, Mark, and Luke record that the disciples have been jockeying for their status among Jesus' followers. In Matthew's account, they directly ask Jesus what the pecking order will be. In Mark and Luke, they are talking amongst themselves, but Jesus discerns what they are up to and challenges their way of thinking. At an individual level, the disciples disciples are thinking competitively. Apparently, it's not enough for them to be part of what Jesus is doing. They want to establish rank and position. This echoes the parable that Aaron taught from last week, where laborers in the vineyard were paid the same, paid the amount of money they needed to live on, whether they'd worked an hour or the full day. 
the all-day workers are seriously annoyed because, to quote them, these last workers put in only one easy hour and you just made them equal to us. James and John want to know that their dedication and hard work is going to be recognized and rewarded with a high status position. But Jesus responds with the upside-down ethic of his kingdom. The way to the top is at the bottom, in living with the humility of a small child. But the disciples' questions about cabinet positions in the coming kingdom also reveal that despite the fact that Jesus has taught about little else for the past three years, they haven't understood how different his kingdom is from the one they are expecting. To be fair to them, their thinking was not outrageous for their time. For centuries, the Jewish people had been longing for and praying for the coming of Messiah. They had been subjugated and humiliated by various empires for hundreds of years, and they were desperate to see the promised king, the son of David, ruling from Jerusalem. And they just couldn't seem to comprehend what Jesus was that what Jesus was teaching was something quite different. What they were already very certain about made it hard for them to learn what they needed to learn. Our mistakes in thinking about the kingdom may be different than theirs, but may be no less misleading. We may not think that the kingdom of God will be a political kingdom centered on Jerusalem, but we may still think that we need to shift the levers of political power in order to establish the ethics of the kingdom. That's clearly part of the tragic story of the religious right movement in the States, where the church sought to implement their version of Christian morality by gaining political power and ended up abandoning Christian morality in the pursuit of power. Or at least that's how it looks to me. I don't want to dive into picking sides in a political dispute. But when Jesus is looking for a metaphor for how the kingdom will come, he doesn't show his disciples a powerful politician. He shows them a powerless little child. Or perhaps we go to the opposite extreme. Instead of trying to marry the countercultural kingdom of Jesus to the present-day politics of power and expediency, we separate them completely. We decide that the lovely ideals of Jesus' kingdom just aren't meant for this generation. We won't see them until he returns in glory. That if we're naive enough to try and live them now, we'll get taken advantage of and lose status. To the disciples who are operating with a misguided notion of how the kingdom will come, and to us struggling to make sense of it two millennia later, Jesus says, turn around. He says, I tell you the truth, unless you turn around and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom will not come through political coup, nor is it a future utopia. It's among us and becomes apparent when we humbly follow the Jesus way. Jesus used a little child as a metaphor to show the disciples that the kingdom he is bringing is not about political power. But he also uses it to show that his kingdom is not about religious status, 
Luke records the story where parents are bringing their kids to Jesus to bless them. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. In his account, Luke sandwiches this episode between two examples of people who were pretty confident that they were just the type of people that God would be impressed with. They thought that they were the cat's meow. The first is the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector who come to the temple to pray at the same time. The Pharisee prays loudly to himself. Oh God, I thank you I am not like other people, robbers, crooks, adulterers, or heaven forbid like this tax man. Even though he was impressed with himself, uh, Jesus was not. Jesus said it was the humble and penitent tax collector who went down to his house justified and not the Pharisee. Then, after the story of parents bringing their children to be blessed and the child held up as an example of what is needed for entrance to the kingdom, Luke goes on to tell the story of the rich young ruler. This guy claims to want the life of the kingdom, says he already keeps all of the commandments, but wonders what more he needs to do. Sometimes I read that as a bit of a rhetorical question, that he thinks he's already doing more than enough and just wants Jesus to rubber stamp his efforts. Jesus tells him that to enter life, he needs to sell all that he has and give it to the poor, to let go of his privilege and status and discover a whole new basis for belonging. But Luke tells us the young man just couldn't swallow that and goes away very sad. See, that's the thing about kids. They haven't accomplished anything yet. They haven't earned any special status. Their belonging isn't because of the good deeds they have racked up, nor is it threatened by any misdeeds that they will do. And to the extent that they are self-aware, they know they are completely dependent on their parents. But at least in a healthy family, they know they are deeply loved. C.S. Lewis was once asked about why he, an accomplished academic and an astute theologian, would write a series of children's books. He said that he wrote a children's story because a children's story was the best art form for something he had to say, just as a composer might write a dead march, not because there was a public funeral in view, but because certain musical ideas that had occurred to him went best into that form. I appreciate that quote much more after diving into Jesus' teaching on his kingdom being most accessible to children. The children in the Narnia books know that they are inadequate. They're just kids. Yet when they are magically whisked into Narnia, they are often sent to do tasks far beyond their own abilities. They have the humility to acknowledge their inadequacy and their dependence on Aslan, the Christ figure. In one of Lewis's tales, Prince Caspian is on the run because his uncle has killed Caspian's father and seized the throne for himself. The four Pavenzi children are sent from our world to help establish him on his rightful throne. When after many trials they finally connect with Caspian, Peter says, Aslan is somewhere close. We don't know when he will act. In his time, no doubt, not ours. 
In the meantime, he would like us to do what we can on our own. What a great picture that is for us living in the now and not yet kingdom. Jesus is somewhere close. We don't know when he will return, in his time no doubt, not ours. In the meantime, he would like us to do what we can, humbly following the way that he showed us.